Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Aiden, you did a good job leading us through this passage. Uh, As I mentioned last week, this chapter here, chapter 4, it starts the third main section of the book of Revelation. Uh, Back in Revelation 119, God gave us an outline for this book. He told the apostle John to write the things which he had seen. That's chapter 1. The things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which shall be hereafter. That's chapters 4 through 22. Hereafter, the things that will be hereafter. In the Greek, that phrase is uh, metatauta. And that's exactly how chapter 4, verse 1 begins and ends. Uh, After this I looked, and then the ends of the verse, I will show you the things which must be hereafter. So these are things that were in the future for the Apostle John, and they're in the future for you and I as well. Maybe not in the too distant future with the way things are going on in this world right now. Amen? Um, There's nothing that needs to happen first before what is described here in chapter 4 on through the rest of the book occurs. Uh, If you have that little timeline we gave you at the beginning of our study in Revelation, I mean, we're we're at the point where the next thing on God's uh, timeline is the rapture of his church, Jesus Christ returning in the air and calling up his saints uh, to go and be with him. God could start any of that at any moment now. And all of that is described in detail. We're going to go through that in detail. Um, the things that will happen here on earth after we go up, starting in chapter 6. But this week and next week, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5. And they give us a little pause. Uh, It's a little interlude. It's a very important one. It's a message from God to remind us of His great grace and that He is in complete control of everything before he tells us in chapters 6 through 19 about the terrible and traumatic things that will happen here on earth and that are headed for those here on earth during the great tribulation. We get a peek into heaven here in chapters 4 and 5. Now, some of you might be too young for what I'm about to show you uh, this morning for it to bring about any memories. But um, Ray, could you play that little short video I got up there? Let's see if you remember this. Here are some exciting coming attractions from Paramount. Did that make you want to go get popcorn? You remember that? It's like late 90s, right? You just got off work. You just got out of school. You went to Pizza Hut. You got your pizza. You got a two-liter, and you went to Blockbuster. And you brought home a VCR cassette. You're going to relax. Coming attractions. Uh, And that's what we have here in chapters 4 and 5. We get this serenity-inducing peak into heaven, a a faith-fueling glimpse of where you are headed if you know Jesus as Savior. Before we study chapter 4, verse by verse, let's ask God's blessing on our time here together. Lord, uh, I thank you for these two chapters, um, definitely needed before we get into the part of Revelation where it it can be, um, it, it can be 
frightening, just to put it plainly. Uh, shouldn't be for those who know Jesus as a Savior because we won't be here for it. Uh, and so to remind us of your great grace and to remind us that you are the sovereign one who's in control of all things, you give us these precious verses in chapters 4 and 5. We get a glimpse into heaven, and I thank you for that. And I pray that you would use it to change how we live here and now. That's the whole goal uh, of us studying this book. That's the blessing that comes from us studying it, just as you promised in chapter 1. We will be blessed if we study and understand and apply the things that you teach us here. I pray you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're first taught about the throne room's attributes in in verses 1 to 4. We get a description of heaven in these verses. I'm of the opinion that probably the most descriptions of what heaven is like is found here in this book of the Bible. But uh, if you're like me, you probably wish there was more. I'm thankful for what God does tell us. But man, I can't wait to experience uh, everything that the Bible talks about and more. I want to see it for myself. I want to get the full picture. Uh, However, we know that God does tell us everything we need to know in order for you and I to live faithfully for Jesus here in expectation of knowing all one day. John writes in verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, meaning the the voice that John heard way back in chapter 1, it was the voice of Jesus, it was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. And then what did that voice say to John? Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. So at this point in the book of Revelation, we ought to be able to notice the parallel between what is happening right here in this verse and what you and I as born-again Christians are waiting for. Jesus, with a trumpet-like voice here, tells the apostle John, come up hither. Aren't those the words that you're longing to hear? That trumpet sound? I sure hope so. I hope you feel the same way I do. I'm waiting for that trumpet sound. And for all who have been saved by our faith and God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, uh, for us to uh, hear that voice that says, come up and us leave this world in the twinkling of an eye. God's word describes it. One second we're here on earth, and the next we're with Jesus forever. Are you listening for that trumpet sound? Are you eager to hear Jesus utter that same invitation to you? Come up hither. Now, whether John was literally taken up to heaven here in these, uh, these verses for a time to see all of this, or whether just his spirit was, I cannot say. I don't think we can know for certain the same thing did happen to the Apostle Paul. If you remember during our study in Acts, he was stoned to death on one of his mission trips. Paul writes of that experience in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 to 4. He describes there being caught up. Caught up is the, the same Greek word, harpazo, where we get our teaching on the rapture, and Paul was caught up to paradise, he said. He heard unspeakable words, but Paul says, whether in the body I cannot say, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, only God knows. But in any case, just like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John here, he gets this visual, he gets this life-changing glimpse of heaven's throne room and its attributes. Now, I'm going to do my best to offer us the same thing. Uh, this morning through God's word here. In verse 2, John tells us, and immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, the throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So now I I accentuated some words uh, there, and that's because the book of Revelation does. If you remember from back when we started this study, I stressed to you that the main uh, theme of Revelation is not the tribulation. It's not the antichrist. The main theme of this book of the Bible is Jesus Christ. 
And if we would flip back a few pages and you look at the title, that's actually what it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some other sub-themes, um, themes that are important, themes that should draw our attention way more than the coming seven seal judgments that we'll look at and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. Here's some things that will do us a greater good spiritually than who the Antichrist might be or other things of that nature mentioned in this book. And one of those sub-themes that definitely relates to Jesus Christ is that of God's throne. We could call Revelation the throne book. That word is used 45 different times in this book and the whole the rest of the New Testament, it's used only 15 times. I'd say that God is trying to get us to focus on something here. A throne, what that means for us, how that should impact you and I right here this Sunday morning. And at the end of verse 2, John mentions seeing one sat on the throne. But here the description and the attributes that follow, they're not direct descriptions of him. God's word tells us in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known to us. And we're going to learn here what we're taught elsewhere in God's word, that God is so holy, our God is so glorious, that anytime we read of some interaction between God the Father and some individual here in God's word, they might interact with some uh, visual manifestation of God, but no one has ever seen God himself. How does, John, uh, how does God have John describe this one who sits on the throne in verse 3? It says he was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So uh, some people try to connect these descriptions here with attributes of God, and that's possible. But the main point in this description is to point us to God's great glory, how glorious he is when John sees this. Jasper, that's an old New Testament word for diamond. And sar sardine or sardius, an old New Testament word for a ruby. And this rainbow, it says it's got the prominent color of green. And all of this, God is trying to communicate to you and I what John saw here, that the blinding, gleaming, glistening glory of God in heaven. He's on his throne. And then verse 4, the beginning, it closes this section of the throne room's attributes by revealing that there's some other thrones around this throne, 24 of them. In fact, the, the King James Version refers to them as seats, but it's the same Greek word as throne that God sits on. I believe the translators in the King James are trying to get us to understand that these 24 thrones that surround God's throne, while they, yeah, they're in fact thrones, they're not quite the same as his. And in the rest of verse 4 and then on into verse 8, God calls us to take notice of the throne room's audience. So we know who's on the throne, the throne, it's God the Father. But who's on, these, who's on these 24 other thrones? Verse 4 says, uh, four and 20 elders. And they're clothed in, in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And that description informs us right there who these 24 elders represent. Some believe them to be angels of some sort. The issue is that while angels are sometimes pictured in God's word as wearing white clothing, never are they pictured with crowns on their head especially not this crown. This is that Stephanos-like wreath that would be awarded in that culture to victors in athletic competitions, the very crown that God promised the churches that he'd give to the overcomers. And angels are never pictured in the Bible as ruling. They're never on thrones. Uh, that's something that's only promised to the redeemed. 
to those who have trusted in Jesus as Savior. Again, to the overcomers that we read about in all those letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. So it's best for us to view these 24 elders who are sitting on thrones around the throne of God, to view them as representatives of the redeemed. They're symbols of God's saved people, both in the Old and New Testaments. Think about the Old Testament. There's 12 tribes, right, of God's people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. There's 12 disciples of Jesus in the New Testament under the New Covenant. And all of them here are wearing the crowns that God promised to those who turn from sin and turn to faith in Jesus for salvation. If we look at verse 5, it describes lightnings, thunderings, and voices as proceeding out of God's throne. And we're going to see similar descriptions later on as we go through the book of Revelation, especially prior to or in the midst of the judgment that comes upon the world during the tribulation that God sends to earth. And in verse 5, and, and everything described here, we're reminded that our holy and our glorious God, he, he must judge sin and rebellion against him. For those who receive Jesus as Savior, Christ took that judgment for us on the cross in our place. But for those who reject Jesus as Savior, well, then the full force of God's righteous judgment awaits them. It comes straight from the throne from which he rules. In the end of verse 5, it also describes seven lamps burning before the throne, Seven lamps of fire, and we're immediately told what these represent. They're the seven spirits of God. That's a phrase that's been used before in the book of Revelation, and God describes the Holy Spirit this way in Isaiah 11:2. He's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Let's go to verse 6. John describes seeing a sea of glass. It's like unto crystal. And there seems to be some connection here to the large basin that was in the tabernacle. It was in the temple in the Old Testament. It's a place where the priests would cleanse themselves before they approached God in worship and service. The whole setup of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple it was a mirror of this throne room in heaven. So let's do a quick review of this whole scene. We got God the Father, and he's sitting on the throne and then we have the throne room's audience. It includes 24 elders that represent the saved throughout all the ages. They're on thrones around him, but there's some other members of this audience, and they're described at the end of verse 6 and in verse 7, right? The King James Version refers to them as beasts. The Greek word literally means living one. There's four living creatures here, and they're quite unusual according to the description there in verse 7. So the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Um, we've seen this description before in God's word. Ezekiel saw the very same creatures in heaven, according to Ezekiel 1, 5 through 12. And with other Old Testament descriptions, we can be certain that these four, these are angels. Verse 8 says they had six wings. And like the angels known as seraphim that the prophet Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, um, six wings, with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew about doing God's bidding. It also says they were full of eyes within. However, according to the, this lion and calf and man and eagle face, these appear to be the angels known as cherubim, the same ones Ezekiel spoke of in the first chapter of his book. And wow, this is quite a fantastic scene, isn't it? It's glorious. And if you're like me, it's, it's even a little difficult to, to comprehend. And so what is the point in God having John communicate what he saw in heaven here? I mean, this is going on in heaven even right now. 
How is this supposed to impact you and I as Jesus followers this Sunday morning? Well, let's finish the passage by noticing the throne room's activity in verses 8 through 11. What are these amazing angels doing? Well, look at the second half of verse 8. It says, they rest not day and night. And they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Did you get that? What are they doing? Unending praise. Unending worship. They don't stop. And they have but one song here. It just continues on and on and on from eternity past to eternity future. And because of that, what does the rest of the audience do? Well, verse 9 says that when those beasts... When they give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. Well, then the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. And they worship him that liveth forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Worship. That's the throne room's activity. They fall down in overwhelmed awe. These are the redeemed of the Lord, those who have been saved by God's grace to us in Jesus. They're so smitten by the holiness of God, by the glory of God, that they fall down. And it says that they sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were created. Now, this might be a little unusual for us to do in a Sunday morning sermon, but uh, play along with me if you will. Would you, would you take your hymnal, if you got one there, and turn to hymn number 23? Because we have this song. Somebody put it to music. Um, and I, I hope most of you know it. I, mean, I don't know that we sing it a whole lot here. But uh, if not, uh, me and Krista might be doing a duet, right? Um, hymn number 23, it's Thou Art Worthy. Well, can we join just for a moment this morning, can all of us here join this chorus in heaven that's singing this even right now? Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, Glory and honor and power, for thou hast created, hast all things created, thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. Thou art worthy, O Lord. He is, amen. He's worthy. Do you know that's why you're here this morning? For the same thing that went on right there. This is the throne room's activity, unending worship. The very thing for which you and I were created. The reason you were born. And because as human beings, we didn't do so good on that original purpose the reason why you've been born again. Unending worship. If you've trusted Jesus as Savior, this is why you're alive. It's why God woke you up this morning, to worship him. Do you understand that's why Jesus died for you? Maybe you've asked that. Why did he die for me? This is why Jesus saved you, so that you'd worship him with unending praise. That's what goes on in heaven. Now listen to me. When I come across sections of scripture like this or 
like the one in Ezekiel where he gets a peek into heaven or like the one in Isaiah where he sees God's throne room and he sees those six winged angels and they cover their face because they don't believe themselves to be worthy to be in God's presence and, and to look on him. When I, when I read these passages, sometimes I get anxious. I'll be honest, sometimes I even feel a little unaffected because I, I definitely feel like I don't belong there. When I read about the, the almost indescribable, almost incomprehensible glory of God that, that John, he struggles here to put it into words, the, the glory that emanates from our holy God and from the throne room of heaven. When I think about that, and then I think about my own wickedness and my own sinfulness and how many times I raised my fist to heaven and I said, no, thanks, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want then my reaction is a lot like Isaiah's was in Isaiah 6, where he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm not even worthy to be thinking about any of this, let alone be present here in any way. And that's until I turn to God's word and in other places in scripture where it describes the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16 talks about God's throne. Do you know what it calls it there? How God describes it there, it's a throne of grace. A throne of grace. And church, I wept at my desk as I typed out these words earlier this week. Because would you listen to God's invitation to you there in Hebrews 4.16? Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace so that we can obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. That's God's invitation to you. And do you know why you can accept that invitation? Do you know what makes it possible for you to feel like you do belong here in the audience of heaven? And we're going to get into detail in this in chapter 5 next week, but let me give you a sneak preview. There's somebody else at this throne. In chapter 5, he comes out from behind it. He's a lamb. It's a lamb that is alive, but you could tell that it had been slain. That lamb is Jesus Christ, and he gave his life as a sacrifice on that cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. He paid the penalty for every time I raised my fist toward heaven's throne and told God I was going to do things my way. It's Jesus Christ who makes it possible for anyone who will place their trust in him as Savior to come boldly before this throne of grace, to obtain mercy and grace from the Holy One who's seated on the throne. It's, he's the one who, who invites us to come and to join the rest of heaven doing what we were created to do, to worship God in unending praise. A praise song of a life lived for him. You know, God has the Apostle Paul explain the very same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. And there God tells us the why behind the salvation that we're offered in Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus died for all, that those who live, those who have been saved, that they no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and then rose again. Is that you? Can you look back on some point in your life when you heard about who Jesus is and what he had done to save you and you confessed your sin to God in prayer? You asked Jesus to be your savior. If you've never done that, do it now, like right now, even as I'm talking. And let me know if you've got questions about what it means to be saved. Let me know if you've asked Jesus to be your savior here this morning. Christian, you who have done that, you can remember that day when you turned from sin and in faith you turned to Jesus. Are you no longer living for yourself? but living for the one who died for you and rose again. 
Because that's a life of unending worship to God, not just singing a few songs at church on Sunday or Wednesday, but the praise that is the obedience of a life lived for Jesus. That's a song that never ends. And we're going to have a time of invitation, a time to respond to God's word here in a second. But would you look again at those four angels and think about them? They never stop singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Does your life sing of his holiness? Does your life give glory to this glorious God? And think about those 24 elders, individuals here who represent you if you've trusted Jesus as Savior. Do they represent you? Let me ask you this. How long has it been since you fell down before him? How long has it been that you cast everything that you have before him? The, the one who is worthy to receive honor and glory and power. And if it's been a long time, that can change this morning. There's an altar open here as we have a time to respond to God's word, an opportunity for you to join the audience of heaven and falling down in worship to him who is worthy, giving everything to him who is worthy. To co- an opportunity to come boldly before God's throne and thank him. That is a throne of grace. Tommy, would you come and lead us in a time to respond to God's word this morning?